So I was riding my bicycle with a group of friends in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And the trail took us through a darkened tunnel and I didn't see a pothole on the surface and I went down hard and I couldn't walk. And they had to send an ambulance to get me and they took me to the local hospital and I got the bad news. I had a broken hip. The good news was that they happened to have a surgeon on hand and they recommended that I get the surgery immediately that would help my hip heal. And I thought about it for a minute and I thought, this is an important operation. Do I really want a generalist who happens to be on call at the local hospital in Johnstown, PA, or do I want a specialist who is, let's say, at the top of their field doing this important surgery? And I asked the people in Johnstown, would it make much difference if I waited until tomorrow to have this surgery? And they said, well, you'll have a very unpleasant night, but no, that it, it won't have any long-term impact by waiting a day for the surgery. I said, well, if you don't mind, I think I would like to hold off. And we did find a surgeon who actually not only specialized in broken hips, but he actually specialized in broken hip trauma, which is what I had. So anyway, I took, got an ambulance uh, to Pittsburgh, had the surgery the next day. Then I put together a team of a nutritionist, uh, an acupuncturist, a physical therapist, <clears throat> and a nutritionist. And, you know, with this team, I started the process of, and oh, and of course I did have the surgery. With this team, I started the process of healing. And when I went in for the first checkup with the surgeon, even though I was in my fifties at the time, he said that that was the fastest recovery he had ever seen. And the reason why I tell you this story is sometimes it makes sense to go to a specialist and have a team of experts looking over very important matters, and particularly if you have a specialty situation. And the specialty situation for most of my clients um, is that they tend to have large IRAs and very often, probably the majority of them, have more money in their IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, SEPs, KIOs, etc., than money outside. And that takes a specialty to really get the most out of that IRA and retirement plan, both while you're alive and after you are gone. So yesterday we concentrated on Roth IRA conversions. And of course, we talked a little bit about estate planning but that the concentration was really on what I would call the living part. Today, the concentration is going to be on the dying part. We're going to talk about the best estate plan for IRA and retirement plan owners. And we're also going to talk about what the impact of the new law is, the new law being not so new, the SECURE Act, and what, if anything, you should be doing about it. And of course, this is going to be very important for people who want to keep their tax bill to a minimum, and they're very interested in protecting their family. Now, I'm going to address, let's say, a, a particular group, which I call the leave it to beaver, um, meaning original husband, original wife, same kids, same grandchildren. Most of the concepts will apply to most anybody, but specifically when I go into the examples, that's going to be the example that I'm going to use because that tends to be the majority of the people who are 
uh, listening, although interestingly enough, we, and I'm, I'm one of them, by the way, original husband, original wife, same child, um, we are becoming more of a minority as time goes on. Um, and out of curiosity, if you could tell me by typing a Y in the chat box, if you are a Leave it to Beaver couple, again, original husband, original wife, same kids, not, you know, a, a, a love child from the 60s, you know, with a kid from his third divorce and her second divorce and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That, that would help me gauge if um, I have it right and that most people here are Leave it to Beavers. So one of the things that I think about is if I'm in your shoes, what would I, what would I really want? Well, wouldn't it be great to have a, what we call it a financial master plan, um, if you will, a roadmap of things like Roth IRA conversions, how much and when, uh, what, how much money can you afford to spend? Should you have a gifting plan? What is the best asset allocation? What should you be doing for your wills and your trusts and your estate plans? and to get your affairs in order, and to have updated wills, trust, IRA beneficiary designations. Wouldn't that be terrific if that, you know, well, obviously there's no magic wand, but we can help you with, with these things. Um, I would say that in addition to the actually objective difference that having all these things in place make, one of the great things is the psychological freedom of not having this financial worry over your head. Um, and I think that that in and of itself is significant. Of course, the real results are even better. And what I'm gonna say is that, and certainly not for everybody, but this isn't a pipe dream. This is something that can happen. It might take three to six months, um, particularly if you are not a resident of Pennsylvania. Uh, we are Pennsylvania state attorneys and we don't, aren't licensed to practice in other states, but we are allowed to make recommendations. We are allowed to refer to um, a, a state attorneys in other states. And very frankly, most estate plans that we, that we look at, particularly um, when there is a large IRA involved, are really pretty bad. And to us, when we do the, our financial master plans, even if we're not the drafting attorneys, we want to get this right, and that is part of our service, depending on what service, uh, if any, you use with us. Um, and then you'll know, okay, um, I've done my planning. I can now worry about something else. Now, today's program, um, <clears throat> we are going to talk about trust, and we're going to talk about some of the basic types of trust. I'll try not to overdo that part, but people always want to know, and there's a lot of misconceptions there. So we're going to talk about um, <clears throat> revocable and living trusts, which are mainly done in order to avoid probate. We'll talk a little bit about whether you should avoid probate, and we'll talk about trusts for minor beneficiaries. All these are pretty standard stuff. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but very frankly, I have a little bit of my own views on these, and I think that that is important. Um, then we're going to talk about trust when the underlying asset is an IRA or a retirement plan. And that is important because this is what I'm gonna say, I think Matt's estimate, Matt is the uh, veteran estate attorney in our firm. So we've done close to 3000 estate plans and almost always, we always ask to look at the prior will or the prior trust before we 
begin an engagement for one, I don't want to charge people money if what they have is okay. Two, it's hardly ever okay. And then when we're reviewing these documents and now we're reviewing them from people from all over the country, uh, the quality of them, particularly when the underlying asset is an IRA is pretty appalling. So one of the things we like to do is say, okay, here's what you have, here's what we don't like about it, here's how you can correct it. So that's gonna be very important for probably most of the people on this webinar today. We're gonna to talk about uh, trust for spendthrifts. Um, we're gonna talk about an ever more popular trust called the I don't want my no good son-in-law to inherit one red cent of my money trust. You'd be amazed at how many people, even people, when, when I used to do um, in-person events, now we're, we're, we're all virtual. Um, we actually got people in the room just for that one trust. The I don't want my no good son-in-law to inherit one red cent of my money trust. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about trust for special needs children and children um, or beneficiaries who are chronically ill because there's a huge opportunity to help protect those children. And I'm speaking from personal experience, but it is, it's difficult enough in life if you have a disabled or chronically ill uh, child or beneficiary. Um, and one of the worries that those of us who do have a disabled child um, have is what's going to happen to that disabled child after we're gone. And I'm not I, you know, I don't have any great special insights into the, let's call it physically, where that child will be, who will take care of that child, et cetera, et cetera. But I do have some very important insights for IRA owners in what are the best way to handle the beneficiary of the IRA, if you do have a disabled or chronically ill child, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on that because that's obviously um, doesn't meet most people's uh, situation. But for those who, who it does, I wanna alert you to it and get you thinking, oh, I really need a specialist in this situation. Um, and then sometimes trust just don't make any sense. So we're gonna talk about some alternatives to trust. Um, we're going to actually skip the SLAT part. Um, a SLAT is a new type of uh, trust. It, it's probably more relevant for people who have a lot more money outside of their IRA. I will just throw it in there to mention that if you have a lot more money outside the IRA than inside the IRA, um, that you, you might be interested in a SLAT. We're not going to really cover that. Um, so, of course, we're going to talk about, as advertised, what we consider the best estate plan for married IRA and retirement plan owners. We're going to talk about the cost of doing nothing, which is horrendous, particularly after the SECURE Act. And we're going to talk about some of the details of what I think is most likely going to be a great solution for you, which can be named, you can see it in the literature in two different names. One, if you look in the snooty peer-reviewed literature like the Wall Street Journal and a whole bunch of others, it will be called the Cascading Beneficiary Plan. If you look in the things that I wrote, it's the same thing, but it's called Lang's Cascading Beneficiary Plan. So we will uh, cover that in detail. Um, I will be straightforward with you. I will be honest. I'm going to give you great actionable information. Um, and again, whether you do business with us or not, we have a slew of bonuses just for uh, showing up. Um, and I genuinely want to be helpful. 
Um, if it does make sense for us to potentially work together, we'll talk a little bit about how we could potentially do that. Here's what I'm going to ask from you, though. I'm going to ask you to keep an open mind. So we tend to attract very, very smart folks. And with all due respect, and, and often people who are pretty good quantitatively, and don't take this the wrong way because I'm married to um, an electrical engineer myself. My wife has a master's in electrical engineering from Carnegie Mellon, and she's pretty bright cookie. But sometimes some bright cookies can be a little bit stubborn about things. But the good news is, is that a lot of the people and the people who will get the most out of this webinar will be open-minded or data-driven. And if they see an idea that makes more sense than what they had in mind in the past, that they are willing to at least seriously consider that. That will be much more valuable than sometimes, I mean, very frankly, there are people who they have certain ideas that you can't change and they go to these webinars and they look for other resources, looking for somebody who already agrees with what they had in mind. And um, it, it's not the best way to go through, I don't know about life, but but it's not the best attitude to have when you um, are hearing this because there are gonna be some new ideas. And I think that the model that I'm gonna present is going to intuitively attract a lot of people, even people who are a little bit stubborn. But again, please keep an open mind. Please be um, data-driven. And then the other thing is ultimately, what I'm really hoping for is that somebody actually does something. You know, this isn't the kind of webinar that I want you to say, oh, that was nice, I learned some good things, you know, uh, had a good time for a couple hours, now it's time to go back to my life and, and not do anything about it. No, we're, we're, if, if we point out some potential improvements in your situation, your wills, your estate plan, um, again, we're not gonna talk about Roth IRA conversions today, um, at least not much, I sometimes can't help myself, we're actually looking for you to take action, potentially with us, potentially with people that you're already working with, potentially people that are neither us nor people that you're working with. Um, it's pretty hard to draft wills, beneficiary designations, uh, et cetera, on your own. You know, that you don't, you don't want to pack your own parachute. You don't want to draft your own will. Um, by the way, some of those, you know, draft your own wills, they're a lot better than nothing. But particularly when you have a specialty situation, uh, you really do want to see a specialist in that area. Um, as Erica said, um, I have allowed time for questions throughout this webinar, as well as the two-hour Q&A that starts at 1 Eastern. But to be fair, the Q&A that starts at 1 Eastern is, I'm just going to be one of the panelists. And the other two, Larry Swedro, by the way, is a blinking genius. And he's very, very straightforward. He and be open-minded with him because he's going to tell you some things you're likely going to disagree with. Very important one, but I am going to take some questions um, during this webinar also. Um, so why don't we talk about the basics? A trust, all right? What is a trust? Well, it's an agreement where the trustee, and usually for our purposes, um, if we're talking about a um, revocable or a living trust, meaning a trust that takes effect while you're alive, you can be your own trustee. 
But anyway, where it's an agreement where the trustee administers your assets in accordance with your wishes, even if you're the trustee or your spouse is the trustee or both of you are the trustee. Now, this kind of trust is called a revocable or a living trust. And typically, you're drafting the trust and hopefully, and we'll get into this, you're actually transferring assets while you're alive into this trust. Now, a different type of trust is known as a testamentary trust. The testamentary trust is a trust that doesn't have any money, doesn't have any, any assets. It's just basically a piece of paper that's sitting in a safety deposits box somewhere, but it is triggered at your death or potentially at your spouse's death or both deaths. So that's going to be called a testamentary trust, where a living trust um, is something that can be funded and is effective while you're alive. And you can also have a testamentary trust within a living trust. So let's say that your living trust starts with something that I call I love you. And these are the old common I love you wills. I leave everything to you, my wife. I leave everything to you, my husband. Something happens to both of us. It goes to our children. If something happens to one of our children before it happens to us, then the money that would have gone to that child will go into a trust for the benefit of the grandchildren of the predeceased child. That, now that trust, which is, now that trust for the grandchild is <clears throat> a testamentary trust because that's not funded or doesn't have any impact until you and or your spouse and potentially uh, one of your children die. On the other hand, that trust can be a trust within the living trust, um, which is to some extent a will substitute. A trust can be revocable. Revocable just means changeable. Um, and that I'm going to say probably... 95 out of 100, maybe even more trusts that we draft are revocable, meaning if you change your mind, you decide to change the allocation, you decide to change who gets what, you decide to make some change, you can still, as long as you're alive and you have mental capacity, you can make that change. That is revocable. Some trusts are irrevocable, meaning, well, let's say short of a court order or jumping through a bunch of hoops, you can't make any changes. There are times when you want trust to be irrevocable. So, for example, if you have a life insurance policy and the beneficiary of that policy that you have in mind is your kids, and no matter what happens, that's who you want to get it, you might want to make an irrevocable trust as the owner of that life insurance policy. That means that you don't, you don't have the power to change the beneficiary but the benefit of that is since you don't have the power to change the beneficiary and you don't have any rights to that trust, then at your and or your spouse's death, that trust is not in your estate. So it will avoid any federal um, estate tax and depending on what state you live in, um, any state inheritance or pickup taxes also. Um, and the other thing is a trust can allow you to control from the grave. Um, I did mention that you and your spouse could be trustees. So why would you create this revocable trust? Why not just have a plain old will that leaves everything to uh, whoever you want to leave money and your assets to? Well, because if you have a traditional will, 
then in order for those assets to be transferred at your death, those assets must go through a process called probate. We're going to talk a little bit about probate, but frankly, it's a court-ordered process, meaning that the family loses some control. There are delays. There's extra costs. Um, it's not something, by the way, unless it's irrevocable or some other factor, that is necessarily going to save taxes. So when, you know, I know that there are these companies, you know, oh, avoid probate, you know, save all these taxes. Well, that's not really honest. The reason why you avoid probate is to save aggravation time, administration cost, um, uh, avoid delays, etc. So a lot of times people do want to have a revocable trust, but not necessarily to avoid taxes. To, to, if you're talking about tax avoidance, then you're talking about the strategies both that you're doing outside of the revocable trust and inside the revocable trust. But having a revocable trust as opposed to going through probate doesn't necessarily save you any taxes. And it's important that that happens. But the revocable trust, assuming that you draft it and then assuming that you fund it, which is a big one, which we'll get to, that will control the assets that you are, that that you transfer to that trust. So what is probate then? Well, again, it's court supervised process and you know, it goes through some uh, normal type things like proving the authenticity of the will. Um, I will happily report to you in more years than I care to admit, more than 30. Um, we've never had a will contest. If I, I am not the kind of litigation um, a state attorney, if I even smell litigation, I immediately get out of it because um, I don't even want to know where the courtroom is. I'm a business guy. I want to help people. I want to save money. I want to get money to people's charities. I want to cut taxes. I don't want to spend time fighting and arguing between squabbling beneficiaries. Um, I have actually, let's say, got out of engagements or refused to take an engagement and, and I know other state attorneys go, oh boy, hourly rate, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. All the, the siblings are arguing and fighting while I'm just racking up hours. I have no interest in that at all. Um, so I'll say luckily, now we do take, let's say, extra measures to make sure that there isn't gonna be a will contest. Um, we, part of probate is identifying the assets and um, protecting the assets. If it's a house, make sure that the snow is shoveled, make sure that the pipes don't burst, make sure that things are uh, being taken care of. If it's money, to make sure that that money is properly invested. Um, if that money that is invested either in the estate or the trust um, earns income, dividends, capital gains, etc make sure somebody files a tax return. Then there's an estate tax return, typically at the state level, often an inheritance tax return, um, and potentially a federal estate tax return. And the other thing that it does is it appoints somebody to take care of these things. That person is typically called the executor or the female version is the executrix. 